This is Michael Enzi, and you're listening to the Left Coast Pirates. Morton will try to go all the way. Seconds to go down by two. Here's Whitehead. Gardemeyer Chefu gets the step into the lane, goes to the bucket, layup, rolls around and in, and a foul! Whitehead ties the game! Pow! From Trenton! Woo! What Trenton makes, the world takes! From just west of the Ward Place Gate in San Diego, California. He is Mike Deziri, class of 2001. I am Tom Kaharski, class of 1997. And we are Left Coast Pirates. Welcome to this week's episode of Left Coast Pirates. It is December 13th, 2020. And Mikey, what a week we had. Maybe this living nightmare that is 2020 is crawling to an end. And we've got some kind of light at the end of the tunnel, man. The women's team debuted this week and went 2-0 with two big blowout wins against St. Peter's and Wagner. They shot the lights out of their games, Mike, and they always pushed that pace. And it was real fun to watch and good job by Coach DeFalco holding down the fort while Coach Bazella is recovering from COVID. We also have an addition to the Seton Hall extended family. Left Coast Pirates listener Jeff Stanton and his wife Katrina welcome Baby Miles. And if that's not a Seton Hall name, I don't know what is. Baby Niles is now only 26 games behind Brian Custer's undefeated streak. And we're hoping he catches up quickly. And Mike, no truth to the rumor that Jeff uses old podcasts to get Baby Miles to sleep. But most importantly, at least in the context of Left Coast Pirates, the men's team went 2-0 with wins against Wagner and the Biggies home opener against St. John's. I know you always have this hard time getting pumped up, Mike. I know you're always grumpy. But how can you be grumpy with all this good news, Mike? Ah, Tommy, no no offense to Lauren, the ladies, and God bless to Jeff on the growth of his family, but I am not going to let you turn this podcast into an extension of Facebook. We are here to talk about the Seton Hall men's basketball team. God bless to all the other success out there in Pirate Nation. But Tom, we're we're here to talk about the the guys team. You're right. I I don't have a big response this week. There's, There's not much for me to open the show with. It, it definitely helps when the team wins. I mean, I'm not coming on this show with all those grumpy vibes. They just, they kind of flutter away, you know? Here's an interesting stat to kind of kick off the show. During the Kevin Willie regime, the team is now nine and two in Big East openers. So more often than not, Kevin has you in good spirits to kick off conference play. And that's basically where I'm at right now. I'm in good spirits. I mean, it's just what the doctor ordered. Two wins, back over 500. Let's keep rolling and let's start the recap. Well, Mike, before we get to that recap, you know, I had an interesting thought this week. You know, this week was in total contrast to the previous week, obviously. You know, we played four games in six days last week. And man, I'm telling you, the fan base was emotionally drained. I was tired. I I think it had a lot to do with just that much. And then this week, we had our normal college basketball week. We had a pair of games. And it dawned on me, what better type of scheduling is out there than college basketball as far as sports is concerned you know baseball 162 games over you know six months men they play it five six games a week and you don't even care half the times you could tune in two weeks later and you're still you basically know what's going on football everybody loves football everybody says football once a week it plays it matters Don't tell me you wouldn't be wanting to see another game, say, Wednesday night. You'd love to see another game Wednesday. You'd love to see those guys play twice a week. College basketball scheduling in its normal method is fabulous. I love it. It makes me happy, and I'm trying to make sure you're happy, Mike. 
Uh, Tom, you're just getting old and you got three kids. So you can't watch 162 baseball games anymore. When I was growing up and I was a te- young teen, I had WPIX on and MSG and I was watching every Yankee game that was out there. I think just stop it. And the football world and the football world. That's why the ratings on Thursday night, Monday night, all these other days get the ratings they get because people want it. But that's one game a week. Your team plays one game a week. Don't tell me you wouldn't want to see the Giants on a Wednesday night play again. It's you. You just can't convince me of it. But anyway, I'm just excited. I'm happy. I'm in my good place right now. So this week, we will review the previously mentioned wins against Wagner and St. John's. We'll take a listen to some of the deep thoughts Kevin Willard had this week, and we're going to briefly preview the upcoming week. But first, Seton Hall 78, Wagner 45. An early 9-0 run gave the Pirates a 16-6 lead. Wagner did make a game of it and cut the lead down to 22-21, but Seton Hall finally said enough of that nonsense and closed the half on a 15-0 run. They would eventually push the lead to a game-high 35 in the second half. All right, Tommy, the box score on this one. Here's a new name to highlight the scoring sheet. Aiki Obiagu, 20-point career-high effort. Get this, 12 of 15 from the free-throw line and eight blocks to boot. Jared Roden with his second double-double on the season, 22 points and 11 rebounds. And for Wagner, you had Elijah Allen with 13 points, five boards, but he struggled from three-point range, two of 10 from distance. Team stats, Wagner on the offensive side of the glass, out-rebounded the Pirates 14-7. to But the Pirates, D still held up uh, otherwise. They held Wagner to 17 of 62 from the field for 27%. They forced 12 turnovers and held them to only five assists. Seton Hall also contributed 12 blocks for the game, and Seton Hall got to the line hitting 31 of 37 for an 83% clip, well above their averages coming in. All right, Tom, the turning point on this one, in my opinion, rather simple. It's when they started playing the fight song as they came running out of the tunnel. Wagner kind of saw the opposition on the other side, and they said, it's not going to be our night, boys. Let's uh, let's pack up and head home early. No, uh, it just it, it wasn't a kind of matchup that's, that Wagner was going to stay toe to toe with Seton Hall. That there really is no turning point. Seton Hall came out strong out of the gate, and, and that was basically the game right there. Well, Wagner had a tough year last year with some injuries, and it looks like it's not going to get any easier this year for them. But let's put on those blue tinted glasses for a second, Mike, and keep the good times rolling. What did we see that we liked this game? I'll tell you what, the pace of this game was great. Defensively, we were picking up full court. Kale was leading the pressure. It was good. They were active. They were into the game. Additionally, they were doing what we really like seeing is we think they need to run more and they did look to run 15 fast break points. It was a good thing to see that they said we're more talented. We're going to put our foot down and we're going to go for it. Well, that's important, especially when you're the more talented and more athletic team on the floor. You want to get the pace of play as high as possible because you want the number of possessions in that game to go up. You're going to continually outclass your opponent the more chances you get to, you get to touch the ball and demonstrate that athleticism, get out and run. So whenever we have that advantage, we definitely don't want to get into a grinded-out half-court game. And you're absolutely right. The pace of play in this one definitely suited the Pirates, and the, the final score resulted uh, based on that advantage that we held. Additionally, look at Ike. He had a tremendous game out there. And, you know, not, I don't think it necessarily started with this game. He started in the Penn State game. They looked for him early in that game to get him involved, get him a few easy buckets, spread that defense out around a little bit, and they continued it in this game. But, Mike, was anyone on the other side of that floor going to stop a legit seven foot two, 270-pound monster that is Obiagu? 
Well, that's what I was going to say. Because, I mean, I saw some of the glimpses or uh, the beginning of consistency out of Ike in some of the other games. He, he's not getting into immediate foul trouble. So he's out there playing bigger minutes. There's going to be games where he gets his fingerprints on the game and puts in a few more blocks and scores a couple buckets, but nothing that kind of jumps off the stat sheet. So you're right. The 20 points, the 12 free throws out of 15 made, those are eye-popping numbers where you go, whoa, maybe you're going to see – kind of a parallel to Gil. I don't think we're at that point yet, but people go, well, if I see it in this game, maybe it's there. And I just want to kind of pull back for a second. You're right. The level of competition has to matter. From the opening tip, you could tell that he was a, a man amongst boys in terms of size. The player that was matching up against him for the majority of the game before he got in foul trouble was their six, seven forward Fletcher, who Tom only weighs 230 pounds. And then they brought in this kid off the bench Brown at 6'10". All right, so that guy's got some height to possibly match up against Obiago's 7'2 that you mentioned. But he only weighs 205 pounds. And Obiago's like a steel brick house at like 270. And then they bring in this kid Wilkins at 6'11", 235. Just a very inexperienced team to begin with. That, that wasn't the kind of front court that was going to really test his ability to see if he's going to be able to play at a 20.8 block night, you know, over and over again against high-level competition. But... Nonetheless, a very nice performance for Mike. Yeah, absolutely. And he did well from the line. You know, they're continuously saying Ike had problems from the line last year. This year, he looks like he's got good form. Now, that good form doesn't necessarily always equate to good results at the end of the game because he's had some stinkers this year. But 12 for 15, what are you going to complain about there? So I'll throw you a stat to complain about just to kind of keep it more tempered, right? He did only grab three rebounds in this game, and he still had five turnovers. So it's not like every time he touched the ball, it was an automatic dunk or trip to the free throw line. And it's not like he was cleaning up the glass to get to the free throw line. It was us feeding him in the post. But to grab only three rebounds is still a little underwhelming considering that they shot 27% from the game. There should have been a lot of rebounds out there to grab, no? I will say, though, he blocked eight shots. So you got to think that some of those rebounds were taken away with some of those blocks. So, you know, at 7-2, he should definitely be getting more than three rebounds a game. Let's see if this continues to be a trend or if this was more of a situation where, you know, it, it is what it is. So... What else did you like seeing in this game, Mike? Well, whenever Jared Roden has a good game, I'm, I'm going to be all over it. You know, he's, he's, he's my backup boy to Sandro Mamukelishvili. So, I mean, and, and he's also probably going to be the, the prominent guy on this roster going forward next year. And we want him to be a prominent piece on the roster this season. So whenever he's going to break out with a double-double game and he shows you his athleticism and he's all over the court, you know what? You got to get excited. Go ahead. Go, tell me that he's only doing it against mid-majors. You know what? I'm just going to sit back. I'm not going to rain on the kids' parade. I don't know. What did he do against St. John's? We'll talk about that in a few minutes, Mike. So let's let's move on. I'm not going to have sour grapes and gripes. That's your bag. What didn't I, you like to see during this game? Here are my sour grapes and gripes for the Wagner game. I mean, like it's hard to pick on a 30-point win. But, you know, Tyree Samuel at times still looks really lost on defense. He fouled out, Tom, in this game. And he was beaten off the dribble and taken to the rim consistently by multiple opponents that he was guarding. I mean, I don't want to make a Torian Thompson comparison, but defensively. Oh, hey, man, hey, that's, that's two Torian Thompson uh, comparisons in one season. I, I'm not eight games in. I'm not comparing his entire game to Torian Thompson. I'm comparing that lost look on defense. The, the slow feet, the not being in position, getting beat back in certain situations. That is a major red flag in getting strong PT in the Kevin Willard system. And over the course of a few games now, it's not a small sample anymore. We're seeing like six or seven games in, he's having that same issue. We're going to talk about it a little bit in the St. John's game as well. What he does offensively is, is the, the ceiling or the sky is the limit in terms of his ceiling. But relative to his defense, that's what he's going to have to improve upon in order to get those big minutes. And you're seeing Ike get more minutes than we thought. I thought Tyrese was going to steal the majority of that time 
outside of Ike starting the game. And that has not been the case. The slow feet bother me more than anything else. You know, we, we kept on hyping this guy up as this athletic freak and he can't keep in front of anybody. And that, that's, that's troubling, but you know, what was really troubling, Mike, your boy, Sandro getting tossed for a weak headbutt of a guy eight inches shorter than him. So let's review the play. There was a bit of a scramble and a, a Wagner guy gets knocked down to the ground. Sandro ends up over top of him as the ball goes out of bounds. And then he kind of gives him one of these, you know, Fugazi tough guy stares down at him. Fugazi. And Fugazi one of the Wagner guys. guys gave him a little shove to get off of him. And then Sandro went all, you know, crazy on him and put his head down to him. And what a bad visual. Your best player having to crouch down and give this, like, head-to-head talk to some backup guard at Wagner. Just bad visual all around. Sandro, you're better than that. Why does it have to be Fugazi? Because <laughs> he's I, acting like a fake tough guy here, man. This uh, this is all this is all. Look at me, I'm bad. I'm I'm showing you my muscles. Here's my issue. There's plenty of banter about it after a 32 point victory. It's to me, it's irrelevant. The only thing that it does is it hurts his collective stats average for the year when you get booted out and you only have six points on the game uh, against a team like Wagner and you should be stat sheet stuffing. He needs to know better. I don't care how the refs evaluate it. Was it a headbutt? Should it have been taunting? Was it a technical flagrant? Who cares? You got to know better. You're the target of the other team. You're the best player. They're going to now think that this is potentially, you know, a chink in your armor and maybe send a goon from the other team after you to get under your skin and try to get you to make a similar mistake in in a bigger matchup, maybe within the Big East. We talk about it all the time with Marquette, how they kind of, you know, try to get a little chippy and get under our guy's skin. So so I'm going to give you a parallel here that I want you to kind of go back down memory lane with me and kind of remember and see if this kind of parallels to this situation. Remember when Miles Powell, his sophomore season against Manhattan, had that, you know, little fisticuffs and he gets tossed from the game. And we're sitting there going, hey, Miles, you're an integral part of this team. You got to know better. It's only Manhattan so we can learn from it and move on. And then a couple, the year, well, it might have been the next year right after that, they're up at Providence and they're taking a tough loss down the stretch and he's getting in fisticuffs in the final seconds in that Providence game. And we just kept on saying, if you're going to be the leader of this team, you got to know better. You got to turn the other cheek. You got to set the right example. You can't get caught up in that, you know, little one-off fisticuffs and, you know, and give the ref an excuse to throw you out of the game. So no harm, no foul here. He didn't get suspended for the next game. Hopefully he learns from it, takes something away from it, and we don't see it happen again. See, the worm has turned here. You stole my thoughts from my head. Yes, I was going to bring up the Miles and Manhattan, and you killed Miles for that. You were absolutely all over him for that. I did, and this I did. this is a similar thing, but you're, you're giving, oh, Sandro, it's okay, it didn't matter. No, it, it's just bad vibes. It's, you know, it, you can't compare it to playing Marquette, who's a top Big East team causing this thing because Marquette wants to muck it up. Marquette's going to do that to you. So we got a situation. Marquette comes in. Theo John getting tossed. They're not going to care about that as long as Sandro gets booted. So you got to be better than this. This was not, you know, if Sandro took the shove and shoved the guy back and then they, you know, got into it, there's no need to get that level of angry for that play. You were at fault to begin with standing over this kid. You should have helped the kid up and moved on. Get out of here. Okay, you make a good point, though. Sandro did get tossed in that Marquette melee, and then Powell was able to come back due to the technicality of the, of the technicals at that point in time. So, you know, are we seeing a trend with Sandro then? You know, that happened in the Marquette game. It's happening again now. No, I don't know. Sandro in the Marquette game came to Powell's aid there. And I had less of a problem with that than this one. You know, it's this one. There's nothing going on here. It's not like there's a blood rivalry between the Pirates and Wagner. Move on. 
So learn, learn from it and move on then. Yes, absolutely. Speak, speaking of learning, when you have a blowout game, you get an opportunity to watch the freshmen or the role players get a little bit more run. What were your thoughts on getting a chance to see some extended minutes for Jahari Long and even a sighting for Dominguez Stevens? I don't know that I got any more thoughts than I did before. It's good that he's getting more run. You know, more floor time gives you more experience. You get more comfortable later. You know, I mean, it's... It's going to be a work in progress. Maybe Willard's right. Maybe the uh, quarantine killed this kid's progression. I don't think his, you know what, what we've seen since, I don't know that there was a whole lot of hype that should have been given to the kid to start off. He's a freshman. He was a, he wasn't a highly recruited freshman and, you know, growing pains are going to happen with him. It and, doesn't concern you. It doesn't concern you just a little bit that in 18 minutes of play, he only attempted one shot. I know he had three assists. He had a couple of rebounds. He was involved in the game, but you know, here's an opportunity to just try to try to get in the flow, try to score a couple buckets, build up some confidence. You only take one shot against Wagner. You know, man, I don't know that the kid's comfortable out there yet. And and to be honest with you, with the way Willard hooked him in other games, say he goes in for a shot and it wasn't the best shot. Maybe the kid's wondering if I take a bad shot here, I'm getting a hook again. And if I can't play against Wagner, when am I going to play? You're baiting me. You're baiting me. You want me to take a shot at Kevin Willard no, during a 32 no, point I, win against, but, but he does that, but he does that. And he shouldn't be, it should my, be, Hey guys, go out there and play this game. Get your feet under you. Um, don't look over your shoulder. We're not losing this game. And then right? hook. You know, Mike, you know, I keep saying this. You can't treat everybody the same way. What do we used to laugh about? You know, it wasn't a season until Desi got suspended for a game, you know? so But <laughs> not everybody reacts well with that. You know, it's last year we were wondering, is Kale in a doghouse? Well, Kale in a doghouse might not be a good place to put him because maybe the kid doesn't react well to it. So I don't know, man. Maybe he's already messed up in the head with this. Well, I think the team has reacted well because they moved on from this game and they rolled it over into a solid performance against St. John's. So, Tommy, hit me with the recap. Seton Hall 77, St. John's 68. Seton Hall finally got off to a quick start with a 19-11 lead eight minutes into the game. The Pirates cooled off, scoring only three points over the next 6:25 to allow the Johnnies to close to one at 24-23. Seton Hall would take over from there, and the lead would grow to as large as 12. St. John's would eventually cut the lead down to three on two separate occasions, but the Pirates always had an answer and ultimately closed it out at the line for the nine-point win. Tommy, I got to give you credit. You do a fantastic job with these summaries, but this is year three and our transitions are still garbage, man. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Speaking of transitions, stats on this one. Uh, Sandro, 32 points, career high, 12 of 18 from the floor, beyond efficient, nine rebounds, three assists, wowing the audience on TV, that is. Uh, the career high. I'm going to pause for a second and just quickly go off on a tangent in the stats section. I'm always saying career high for the opponent. It seems like week after week, I'm rattling off career highs for the Seton Hall guys. Taco Molson, 14 points. Seton Hall career high, five rebounds, two assists, nine of 12 from the free throw line. And Jared Roden chipping in with another nine rebounds. St. John's was led by Julian Champagny, 24 points, six rebounds, essentially going toe-to-toe from Sandro, which was a one-on-one matchup throughout most of the game. Team stats, the three-point shooting was just abysmal. St. John's, 4 of 21 for 19%, and Seton Hall, not much better, 5 of 17 for 29%. Sandro led Seton Hall with 3 of 5 from distance, and the rest of the team was a paltry 2 of 12. The rebounding edge finally went to the Hall, 41-32, and they also dominated them at the line, 28 attempts, 20 makes, and St. John's only got to the line 10 times with six makes. Tom, the turning point in this game to me, it wasn't coming out of the locker room. This is the Big East opener. The game was pretty tight early on, you know, a couple of runs back and forth, but it got to a point where it was 26-26, and then the Hall came down on three straight possessions and hit three straight three-pointers, one by Kale, two by Sandro, It ballooned the lead back up again. Seton Hall took that lead into the half at 35-30, and they never trailed or were never tied from that point out. And I think even you said it to me in talking throughout the game, it never even felt like they were even threatened 
from that point on. So to me, easy turning point. When you hit three threes in college, that's kind of a dagger that most teams can't recover from. And St. John's definitely, you know, they hung around, but but they didn't recover. You know, Mike, so far in this early season, we have keep talking about that our ifs from the season preview have not been answered. But I got to think that one has potentially been answered. We were wondering, can Sandro actually be the alpha on this team? And then we were wondering if he could actually do it with Bryce Aiken being out and not having that kind of emergency exit lane right there. But, oh my goodness, what a season so far from Sandro. Throw away the Wagner and a six-point score in that half of a game, and he's just doing crazy, crazy things on the court. I don't want to be that prisoner of the moment because... Most of the writers that follow Seton Hall are doing it for me. But is he now making a case to be an All-American candidate? Uh, you have seen the lights. You've come not, around, I mean, my no, boy. You know, I just don't kiss ass just because I like somebody. He's actually producing. Okay, but he keeps on raising the bar. That The conversation at the beginning of the year was, you know, first team preseason all big east you know he was he should have been a all big east caliber player if he didn't get hurt last year his numbers dictated if they were extrapolated out for the full season that he probably would have earned that honor so his preseason ranking was not unmerited but i get it you wanted to see him back it up for a full season totally warranted but then you got kevin putting him out there to be carl malone award for being the best power forward in the country and on top of that says i think he's the best player in the country that came back to school this year so you i get it you feel like the hype is just getting completely raised to a level that might not be fair or has not been earned and you're right this is a small sample i mean he's had a very a very good start to the season but just those two 30 point outbursts alone have the imprint on a season that could possibly save the direction the Pirates were heading, put them back in the wing column, could put them in Biggie's prominence, that's going to get them on the national stage. The writers are going to see it. The announcers are going to see it. He's a 6'11", John Fanta called him a unicorn. Those kind of guys just jump off the page. So when he does what he did in this game, whether you like it or not, he's going to get the All-American type conversations it just but, is. but he's deserving it now and here's the crazy thing you know i think willard earlier this season said it was all about confidence for mamu as long as he can stay confident in his abilities he can do this he looks perfectly confident he looks perfectly calm at all times out there with that ball and and you know let's say something that everyone's heard over and over he is a matchup nightmare at this level He's a 6'11 guy with skills. You put a smaller guy on him to try to take some of his skill set away, he can back him down and take it to the post. You get a bigger guy out there, he's going to go right around him. And he makes good passes, he makes the right play most of the time, and he's been really in control. Mike, we're watching that St. John's game, and one of the announcers at one point announces that he's got 30 points, he just scored his 30th point. And I'm sitting there thinking... He can't have 30 points. He hasn't shot it enough. We look at the stat sheet. He was 12 for 18. And it's it's mind-numbing what he did against St. John's. They just could, There was no answer for him. So here's the difference between being a player that is playing well, a player that's a first-team all-conference player, versus somebody who deserves the accolades to be a player of the year type candidate at whatever level you want to evaluate it. He is taking over games. That's the difference. People can stat sheet stuff all the time and show their athleticism and, and just be talented, that talented where you deserve to be on some of these lists. But if your team wins and you take over games, that will outshine. And his confidence is what's really coming through in these efforts. And I'll give you his quote from after the game. He goes, I've been working for this moment for not only these three years, but since I came over from Italy, I think I can be an All-American. That's Sandro after the game. That's not Sandro. Who is this guy? I never heard Sandro <laughs> make those kind of comments in his first three years. You know, JP Pelsman said it once before on our show. He has to believe that he can do it. Now he believes he can do it. And I think that's the overarching difference in Sandro from the previous years versus the Sandro that we've seen so far. And it's exciting because if the other guys around him get better and we get Aiken back and you have the unicorn, you have a player of the year candidate, 
you can kind of, you know, hitch your wagon to this horse and we could maybe ride him. I don't know. I don't know how far we can ride him yet. Well, I can't wait to see him play against Nova and UConn because I don't know if anyone else in the Big East can actually match up with him at that position outside of what Nova and UConn can do. I'm interested in seeing it. Don't sleep on Jeremiah Robinson Earl from Nova. He's no, a that's player. the matchup I want to see. Okay, that's what I'm right. saying. Okay, okay. All right, Tommy. I, I was gonna let you set the stage for this next one, but I but I can see it in your face through the through the Zoom. You don't want any part about it. And I get it. I get it. He's another one of my favorites so far. He's a, he's becoming quickly a crowd favorite amongst Seton Hall Pirate fans. To call Molson had a great game in my opinion. To me, the the word that's being used to describe him, and I know you don't like it. He is a junkyard dog. It felt like to me he was all over the court in this game. And yes, he's going to get more write-ups because his final stat line finished with 14 points as the second leading scorer. You know, he did a lot of other things that could be measured. But to me, it's, it's a lot of the little things that I fall in love with, with, with Molson. And I'm going to kind of walk you through a couple sequences throughout this game that I thought illustrated why you need to love this guy. And I'm going to make you a believer. I promise you, I'm, I'm going to make you a believer. I'm not a disbeliever, Mike. I like the kid. I'm just not ready to fawn all over him. I, I'm just telling you, he's going to be a very integral part of this team's success. He's I, a, I, I don't doubt that. But you're fawning over him like he's the he's the prettiest girl in the prom. Stop I, it. I, I love the things that he does. I, I'm going to give you some of those examples now. Let me roll with it for a minute. Early in the game, he grabbed a rebound and he had this great outlet pass to Kale that was kind of streaking down behind the defense. It wasn't even there yet. He had the vision to kind of see Kale streaking out. He hadn't cleared the field yet, but he led Kale to an easy bucket. Twice, he had really nitty-gritty offensive rebounds. For your guards to get in there and grab multiple offensive rebounds, that's a strong facet of his game that other people on this team don't have. Late in the game, he took a charge. Big turning point with under four minutes to play. He took that charge. And then he had a big rebound in traffic with under two minutes to play. And that doesn't even talk about what he did with the ball in his hands. Willard tried to compare him to Alpha Diallo. And I, that, that's not a fair comparison at this point because Diallo was an all-conference type player. But one of the things that Diallo did really, really well in his skill set was he could take smaller players into the post and create an offensive mismatch. So with the game tied 65-62 and us really needing a bucket, and St. John's completely honing in on Sandro, what happens? He goes and posts his guy up. He creates this little jump stop turn into the lane and gets a layup out of it. It was a strong move to the middle, and that was that was it to me. But once we got that bucket, that was enough breathing room. St. John's was done. But if they don't score in that possession and St. John's comes back down and makes it one or tied, I, I don't know. And, and whether you want to admit it or not, he got to the line. Yes, he made one out of two in a couple sequences late, but he was nine for 12 for the game. And he was six for eight in the final minutes. I I'm going to throw it back to you. You, you. I know you don't want to bring him up the basketball. I, I get all that. He's not a point guard going full court, 94 feet. But in the half court, if you give him the ball at the top, he can beat his guy off the dribble, get into the lane and create. You want to you wanna pick on the guy in any way whatsoever. The floor is yours, but I think he had a fantastic ball game. Yeah, you would because he's your new favorite guy again, and you want to create this narrative, this fighting back and forth between us that I don't like him. You know the first words out of seeing the game against the Italians last year on Flow Hoops was, Ooh, I like this kid. He looks like he knows what he's doing out there, and he's proven it. All those things you talked about are absolutely accurate. Those rebounds, rebounding for a guard is key, and he's a tough kid. He gets in there. He's not afraid of the moment. But, Mike, let's just look at it in this way. He is shooting 37% from the floor, not from three. His threes are actually better than his floor shooting, okay? He is shooting 37% from the floor. It's horrendous. A lot of those free throws opportunities were from drives that he was out of control and that one that just rimmed out you had to feel bad for him because it was a really nice move but that's been his season so far yes he could take the ball at the top of the key and break his guy down and then usually throw up a crazy layup that's not going to go in this time the whistles were with him and Mike Anderson at the end of the game for St. John's was complaining about those whistles so let's take a step back here 
He's doing a great job at what he's doing. He's coming off the bench. He's providing some offense. He's providing some defense. I love it. I love I, I love seeing everything. But I can't believe this is the second biggest thing you're taking from this game in the blue-tinted glasses section, Mike. I can't believe you for a second. We've been complaining for as long as we've been doing this podcast that there's one thing that Seton Hall doesn't seem to be able to do, and that's start off strong they never trailed in this game mike and they took a quick eight point lead on the johnnies yes they ended up tying it up seton hall fought back and we're up by five at the half and they came out strong again in the second half they pushed that lead to up to 12 points this game was never in jeopardy, in my opinion. This never felt like we were losing control. And you have the temerity to come in and bring up that stat line. Mike, stop it. Stop taking your favorite guys and trying to pump them up. There's much more important things to talk about. If there's anything I'm going to take away from the blue tinted glasses section from this game. I can't disagree with you about the, the hot start or the strong starts or the resiliency. Absolutely great job by the Pirates across the board. Absolutely. What has been established in this section is if the, we threw out a fan poll of who the favorite podcaster was relative to the Takal Molson uh, storyline, <laughs> I'm getting all the votes and you're in some big trouble, man. That's okay, Mike. Get on board. But you know what? Should you want to pump up one of your boys, I'm going to take a shot at another one of your you're boys. Gonna you're going to tear him down. You're going to tear down the about 20 minutes ago, Mike, you asked me what I thought about Jared Roden's game against Wagner. And now I get to talk about what he looked like against St. John's. And you know, Mike, it's not going to be fair because it's not going to be pretty. He had a tough game. His shot wasn't falling. He was driving out of control. He had another offensive charge in this game. And immediately I hit you up and said, oh, what's that? Eight on the season now? But, Mike, more importantly, he was passing up on open three-point shots. And, you know, Mike, we can't have him out there if he's not if he's going to do something like that. He's got to take that shot when it's there, regardless if it's going down. I, I can't disagree with you. I mean, Kevin said it in his postgame. He, he believes that Jared is their best three-point shooter. He had the confidence to shoot it last year. In conference play, he was shooting 44.6% last season and this year if you back out the good game he had against Iona he's only five of 20 on the season for 20 percent and you see it he's pump faking all the time when he's not getting closed out on he's wide open and then he's driving into the lane really not knowing what to do passing the ball out not to an open guy but a guy that's essentially being covered and then the ball swings around the perimeter and we're getting stuck with you know a, a four shot with five seconds or less you know, on the shot clock when the, the, the great shot in that possession was there for Jared to take. If he's going to be the third best player, potentially offensively on this team, he's got to take that shot. He's got to make that shot. He's got to force the defense to respect him from that distance to create those open driving lanes. He's, he's forcing it right now. And that's why you're seeing the charges. I think there's a cause and effect. What? So as San, as Sandro is growing in confidence, I am questioning at times where Roden is going with his. I don't, I'm, I'm going to keep it real. If the guy's not doing well, I'm not going to just jump on the bandwagon because he's one of my favorite guys. Roden has been inconsistent. He's had two really good games against the low mid-majors, and then he's had games where you're like, eh, he was okay, but we need him to be better. One positive out of his game was he didn't let his offensive struggles affect him on the other side. He still led the team with nine rebounds. Good for him. Let him keep playing hard. And we know he's going to start making that shot, but he's got to take it when he's that open. Totally agree. Totally agree. Let, let's talk about taking shots and then not making shots. What is with this team getting blocked all the time? We got we got the size. And once again, against a, you know, a smaller team in St. John's, we were outblocked 8-1 to one at the rim. And twice, Tyrese gets stuffed cold. Sandro got swatted once pretty bad. Molson got swatted once pr pretty bad too, driving on the baseline. I, I don't get it. What am I missing here? I, I don't know that we're always taking the ball strong. I mean, Sandro's block was some like reverse 
kind of okay. the layup yeah. thing he was grabbing. That I don't know that that counts as much because he was just trying to make some lemonade out of lemons there. But yes, Tyrese, I don't know if he's going hard to the rim. And here's something for you, Mike. I said this to you before off air. I don't know how vertical he gets on his jump, Mike. You said, well, he's had those big dunks. I'm like, yeah, he's 6'11". He's got long arms. But does he get off the ground enough to get some of these things in? You're not taking our conversation into full context when you share the story. You got to share the whole story. So what I said in response to that was, normally when Tyrese is sending in the, whoa, did you see that type dunk? And he's tomahawking balls behind his head or he's grabbing that alley-oop. It's because he's out running the floor and building up momentum towards the basket. The two times that he got blocked for the most part, he's getting it on the baseline with only one or two steps towards the basket, or it's a complete drop step type situation. In those instances, he's not getting above the rim to the same extent as he is on those other plays. So, but you still need him to to finish above the rim when you're getting the ball down on the block unguarded. We're not talking about he beat his guy off the dribble and then goes up and got blocked by somebody coming over. He was unguarded. The defense is coming over to just try to collapse and and bail out to the best of their ability, and they're sending it back hardcore to him. I just it, it's weird. Well, I just, as, I to say. as I did with Jared, I'm going to give it a little positivity for Tyrese. He actually was crashing the glass. He had a pair it of was. offensive putbacks. So there's little positives that we could build here. Not too much sour grapes and gripes when you win. But you know what, Mike? He's we're still lacking fundamentals. And Tyrese is still not moving those feet on defense. So here, so here's the thing. We're, we're, and I'll ask you this real quick. Were we, are we the better team compared to St. John's talent-wise and, oh, sure. and complete roster? Well, okay. Yeah, top bottom. We're gonna say I'm gonna say we're better than them. So when your best player on the floor and the best players on your team has the type of game that Sandro has, and you're overall just the better talented team, you're probably gonna win those games. What my issue is, I, I think bigger and, and beyond. So we're doing sour grapes and gripes. Yeah, I'm, I'm not going to bag on the win, but I want to see how would this kind of portray if you had a fundamentally sound team like Villanova across the way and they make you value every possession. And then I look at some of the plays that happened throughout the course of this game that allowed St. John's to stay close and against a better team might not allow you to get over the hump. There was a sequence where we make a basket on one side and Tyrese gets beat back on the other side for a layup. And when you go back and play the replay, he's jogging back on D, trailing his guy. That's not acceptable. There was a situation where Shavar lost his guy on a shot and didn't block out. You know, Roden continues to get these over-the-back loose ball fouls. You know, and a lot of things we've talked about with Sandro, with Roden, it's just, you know, it's, it's a lot of guys. They're out of control, driving into the lane, and, you know, creating charges against themselves because we're late in the shot clock because we haven't gotten better ball movement or dribble penetration prior to that. These are the kind of things against a better opponent, they're going to stand out as pretty big black eyes. You probably didn't notice them in this game because we won, but these are the kind of things that I'm looking for when I'm taking my notes for sour grapes and gripes. And I don't want to sound like the Debbie Downer again or the negative Nelly, but you, you had a pro- you didn't have a problem with Tyrese getting beat back on a made basket? This is the first time we've been beaten back this season. So there's been a lot of defensive lapses. And, you know, at first you were hoping to chalk it up to no practice time. But you know what? We are pretty deep into the season now. We're in Big East Conference play. It's time to bring the A game. And you can't let that happen during a Big East game. Tommy, I almost had that play as a, whoa, did you see that moment for the week? How about that? Okay. Okay. I almost did. You keep forgetting. No opposition can make the woe. Did you see that moment? But you bring it up. I had a hard time. We had two wins. One that was just a complete blowout. One that we won handily. And I couldn't come up with a woe. Did you see that moment? I always think that every time that Sandro does one of his spin moves for the size that he is for him switching to his right hand, that can almost be a, whoa, did you see that moment? Almost every game. It's kind of almost getting spoiled. Like we had with miles, you know, Oh, miles, you see miles hit that three. Yeah. He hits that three every game. It's, it's not a, whoa, did you see that anymore? So, so, so Tommy, what do you got? Cause I didn't have much either. What, what do you got for me? I'm going to go a little guilty pleasure here, Mike. St. John's game, we go, we're coming back from the under eight timeout of the first half, and they're scanning the crowd to show all the cutouts, 
And who comes into view but our own LCP pirate logo, Mike? I was just ecstatic. I'm taking screen captures and whatnot. Kind of tweeted out that, hey, you know, I don't have the good seats, but I made the broadcast. I thought it was funny that other people were tweeting it out that they saw us. That, that's kind of cool. <laughs> uh, I was more jealous that in the row in front of us, there's iced tea sitting sandwiched between Whitney Houston and Jamie Lynn Siegler, and she was looking good. That's all I got to say. <laughs> oh, man. It was fun, though. It was fun. You know what was also good? The announcing work was pretty good this week. So, Mike, what do you got? Really? Really? Can we go to Mike Flops and Mike Drops and give them props? Yes. Yes, I agree. There was there was one moment that I thought was worthy of the mic drop section this week, and I'm going to start off in the Wagner game with Jim Jackson. There was a situation where Ike had kind of uh, set up a, a ball screen for Shavar, and Ike was kind of moving, and they got called for an offensive foul. And he goes, here's the problem here. He goes, you, you got to be a half a second late when your big is coming out to set the screen. Because if you go too soon, his momentum is going to carry him forward, and he can't stop. And as a result, he ends up picking up the foul. Sometimes it's more so kind of like on the ball handler to be a little more patient to allow the screen to be set. And I like Jimmy. Jimmy's normally like a little more fluff. That was some kind of like, you know, in-depth, in-game basketball analytics and analysis. I liked it from Jimmy. It made sense. Why? Because that happens to us a lot as a Seton Hall team. We're always blaming the big for not being set. And I'm not saying he was blaming Shavar because – all of our guards have had this problem before, but he's, he was coaching it up and saying, hey, there's a little more blame to be placed on this side of the, the play than the big who gets called for the foul. You know what I really appreciate in this? Here's Jim Jackson calling a Seton Hall-Wagner game. Not the most exciting of games. Not a big rivalry. Not a good game in the least. And Jim Jackson's bringing his A game just like a college Hall of Famer should. He it just was recently announced he's going to be inducted to the College Basketball Hall of Fame. And he's given you a really interesting tidbit about strategy. He's not just poo-pooing the moment and telling us how good of a chef that Ike is or something like that. Everybody could learn from this. And you know who could learn from this? Steve Lapis. Steve had a rough time in the following game. He came up with some uh, with, with some points that are really interesting, Mike, and I'm going to give you two. At one point, Steve Lapis says, Seton Hall is a good offensive rebounding team. Steve, have you looked at the stat sheet? Because at that moment, Seton Hall was ranked tied for 164th in the country, which is about middle of the pack, because I think there's 300-some-odd teams in, the, in Division I basketball. Later on, he talks about Ike setting a moving pick. No turnover is good, but that's a good turnover because you don't. What you don't want is steals. <laughs> oh, for crying out loud, Steve! Man, I, I understand where Steve wanted to go with that last comment, but here's here's Jimmy Jackson breaking it down for you, and here's the same exact play, and you got Steve Lapis breaking it down for you. He wanted to basically say, hey, look, if you're gonna have a turnover against St. John's. Don't make it a live ball turnover. He went on to try to explain that because, you know, you don't want to let them get out and transition and jumpstart their offense with your turnovers. But I'm sorry, that's still a bad turnover because that's a fundamental play that as Jim Jackson illustrated in the game before, if you clean up a couple of little things, you know, that play, that doesn't have to happen. And we see it happen in college basketball over and over again. So, yeah, I'm sorry, Steve. I don't want to turn the ball over, period. We turned it over 15 times. You know, St. John's could have taken more advantage of those turnovers. They just didn't happen in the open floor. So kudos for Seton Hall for turning it over 15 times, and they weren't all like pick six automatic layups on the other side of the floor. Uh, some people like Steve. I'm not a big Steve fan personally. You know, Mike, we have a lot of fun teasing folks with the mic drops and flops, you know, we have, we, we, we kind of take the announcers to task, but you know, we've also been taking coach Willard to task with this year's newest section. And now deep thoughts with Kevin Willard. So Mike, this week coach came on the post game uh, for the St. John's game. And he had some interesting comments about how this season's played out so far and I think part of it was kind of in answer to the big uh, brouhaha that Coach K had earlier in the week. So let's listen to Coach Willard's thoughts. 
I have a lot of thoughts, Gary. <laughs> you know, just because someone thinks something doesn't mean they're right. Um, <laughs> you know, I here's here's my two cents, and again, it, it's not worth anything. Um, you know, my 13 guys want to play basketball. They've told me they want to play. They love playing basketball. They miss the fans, um, but they are in the safest environment possible. We test every day. Um, they have unbelievable medical treatment. They are playing the game that they love. Mentally, they know they're safe. Mentally, they know that uh, they're going to be playing. They all, we all know that you're, you're gonna, we were going to have cancellations. We, I talk to, I talk to them about it all the time. Um, I stay, you know, I keep them informed with everything that's going on. I think that's really important as a coach to let your team know. Hey, I mean, back when, you know, we lost Baylor, I said, you know, guys, we're going to get Baylor, but I'm going to get you another game. And here's what, here's what I'm thinking we're going to do. Um, you know, I, I, I don't see why we wouldn't be playing. You know, I just, it's, um, I, I said it before, I think, I think kids are playing harder now than they were last year. Uh, I just, I mean, I'm, I'm so impressed with these young men, how hard they are playing, how hard they're practicing, you know, and I think they want to play. I want to coach. Um, you know, I've, I've learned all the stuff that I need to learn about this, about COVID-19. This age group is extremely safe. Um, and again, we have great doctors, great trainers. It's, it, is, it, is it not ideal? Absolutely, but no, nothing's ideal in this country right now. Tom, I'm normally picking on Kevin. I normally pick on Kevin with his quotes, and I'm going to do a 180 for this specific segment this, uh, this week. I think he's spot on. He, he covered all the major talking points. He talked about, hey, this is going to be just a crazy season. And we know that. And as frustrating as it is, on his side of the fence, they're prepared. They're prepared for the cancellations. They're prepared for the pauses. They're pre pre prepared to deal with what happens you know, if they get the virus. They understand that it's important mentally to move forward. They understand that the demographic that we're dealing with in terms of the players on the court is not as high of a risk as some other targeted groups in this country. He, he had a really, really profound statement here, even though we kind of played it off in the beginning with, ah, oh, what I say doesn't really count. No, I, I disagree. Kevin is a prominent coach in the Big East, He's been on the national scene throughout the offseason, talking with the, the Goodmans of the world, talking with the Andy Katz of the world, being on the forefront relative to his opinion on this subject matter. And we're moving forward. And you said it to me, Mike, you just got to roll with it. And Kevin has embraced that. And there are other coaches in our country and in the landscape of college basketball who have not done that. And he didn't flat out come out and attack Coach K. You know, Gary tried to put him on the spot to do so. But the reality is, as we transition into the pandemic pandemonium section of our podcast, you know, he essentially took issue with what Coach K had to say and kind of took him to task in his own personal way. And I love that about what Kevin did in this specific segment. I never like it when coaches speak in these absolutes. This is the safest environment possible. No, it's not. Because if it was the safest environment possible, you wouldn't have had a pause already, okay? The safest environment possible was to bubble them up and somehow not let the coaches leave, not let the team leave, et cetera, et cetera. So stop with this crazy, over-the-top absolutism that coaches love to speak in. Was it the safest environment possible to put off, pull off four games in six days? No. I mean, it's just silly to talk that way. Of course the players want to play. Of course the coaches want to coach. Yes, their demographic is probably safer than any other demographic and they're big-time athletes. I don't know. This is one of those things like every coach in America needs to answer now because Coach K is complaining about something. Coach K is becoming this kind of crabby old man in his past few years. He's he, he's reaching Bayheim type uh, stature with me at this point. I used to uh, like Coach K. He, there's a difference with it. Coach K. When, when things are rosy, he everything's perfect in the world. Nothing needs to be changed. Duke is on the right charted course. Just roll with it. And people say this all the time. Whenever Duke's having a bad season or the recruiting class didn't work out, the, the, the back starts acting up and he's got to go on leave of absence. And I kind of feel like the timing of his quote 
even though there were some truths to it, didn't align well relative to his team's performance against Illinois, right? So they played two quality opponents in Michigan State and the Fighting Illini, and they lose both at Cameron. I think it's like the first time that's ever happened in like almost 30 years. And then all of a sudden, now we're going to cancel the rest of our non-conference? It's not right? The pandemic pandemonium is out of control? Hey, coach. Hey, coach. Calipari's one and four right now over at Kentucky. I don't see him complaining. He's not canceling the rest of his non-conference schedule. He's out there letting his team develop and learn, and that's the issue. He's changed his MO. His teams in the 90s were all built on four-year lettermen, guys that stayed the course. And now he shifted his model into a one-and-done recruiting model. And in this pandemic, the pandemonium that's been created, no practice time, no cohesiveness, just no unity from getting out on the court as often as you should. This is what's going to happen. The one-and-done guys are not going to gel. You're not going to be as successful. So get out and play games. We criticize Kevin about the amount of games he played in such a small stretch. But don't you think it actually paid dividends in their performance against St. John's? It looks like they were prepared. I know St. John's got a lot of games under their belt as well, but their level of competition did not match even close to the level of competition Seton Hall played against, and I think it showed, don't you? I, I won't buy that an extra game thrown in there for kicks and giggles uh, actually led them to a more preparedness. I think actually, it, it, to be honest, again, you want to talk real, Mike? I'll talk real. In the middle of that week trip across country, Seton Hall's uh, uh, academic advisor tweets out, good luck to all Seton Hall students during their finals. This is final week, and they've got guys traveling all over the country. So don't tell me this is the safest or best thing going on for the college student. They could have had, they could have played their three games that week, had a couple practices thrown in there, not traveled everywhere. Don't tell me, don't go to this absolutism of, oh my goodness, this is the safest environment possible. I don't buy it. I didn't buy it when the college football coaches said that their teams were going to be safer on campus with them because they control them. No, it's nonsense. If you want to get excited about a good Kevin quote, did it sound good? Yes. Did it go against what Coach K said? Yes. And Mike, before you bash on Coach K canceling the rest of his non-conference, it was one other game, Mike. He canceled no. one game. He added Iona. He did not have to add Iona to replace Baylor. He didn't have to add in the he, Oregon he game. He did a little favor for his buddy Patino. Stop it. Let's go. <laughs> Mike, Mike, I'm done talking Coach K. I'm, I, I don't get happy when you don't bash Willard on these deep thoughts. So let's just move on to this coming week and let's well, see I, what I happens. I can't. I can't. The coronavirus has already canceled the first game for this week. You got Xavier in a shutdown now. So the Tuesday game is postponed. Uh, DePaul hasn't played a game. Ask the Xavier guys if they're in the safest environment possible right they, they now. Got, they, okay, got, they, got, they got seven games in already. The, the first game of the Big East was not supposed to be St. John's. It was supposed to be DePaul. DePaul hasn't played a game yet this year. So the, the, the chaos, the craziness, the pandemonium, it's not going to stop. Now this becomes a bye week for Seton Hall. And instead of having three games lined up, now we roll into our weekly previews against Marquette and Providence. We're looking forward to having Ben Steele join us potentially later in this week. But just on face value, interesting matchup for Seton Hall. You know, they got to go out to Marquette, so they still have to travel. I know it's not a true home environment that, you know, because no fans, but they still got to travel out to Milwaukee. You know, Marquette has acquitted themselves fairly well so far. You know, they had the, some close losses to Oklahoma State and UCLA in the non-conference, but they also had a huge win, Tom. They had a, a buzzer beater putback to beat number four, Wisconsin. Uh, one of their guys got fouled uh, with second, like 0.7 seconds to go and they were down by one. He hits the first misses the second and you think they're going to OT and Lewis kind of tips it back up, rolls off the back iron and falls in and the team is going nuts. I'm telling you the players, man, they're still into this season. It might feel like it's a fake season. It might feel like it's, you know, it's, it's off the rails, but the, the student athletes, man, they're into it. They were dogpiling on him. Like there was no tomorrow. You think it's a fake season. I've never said anything of the sort. <laughs> I enjoy that they're playing. I enjoy that they're getting some sort of season. And I actually, it's kind of funny to only see like four games at a piece on the schedule where we're thinking, well, what's going to happen after this date? Well, we're not quite sure. I, I like it, man. And you know what? 
after they have that Marquette game next Sunday. Oh, the dreaded Sunday games. It means a late night of podcasting and editing. But they play Providence, and Providence is having its own problems. Preseason uh, predictions had them high in the, in the Big East standings, but they've started off awfully slow. Ed Cooley's got to work some magic to get them back on track. Yeah, but they have the horses to do so, Tom. I mean, they're not a devoid of talent on this team. You got upperclassmen right now on this roster and David Duke, Nate Watson, A.J. Reeves, names that you've heard now for several years, you know, high ceiling type guys. Watson's been hurt, but now that they're back and they're healthy, you got, you know, Duke is averaging 19 points a game so far. He's grabbing four and a half boards, three and a half assists. First team uh, preseason All-American, you know, top 50 recruit a couple of years back. Now it's, it's an interesting player out you know, that they got to go up against. If he goes off and has a fantastic night, you might not be able to overcome that because they do have a guy in the middle. You know, they do have a 6'10 man in Nate Watson who currently is averaging 18 and a half points per game, six boards. A.J. Reeves was also a top 50 recruit in that same class as uh, David Duke back in 2018. You know, he's probably underperformed a little bit, but he's the kind of guy who can get hot and shoot lights out from three on a given night. You know, they've got some different pieces that have kind of, you know, come in. They got Jared Bynum to kind of play the point guard at 5'11". I think Shavar could kind of really clamp down. She doesn't have to give up any size in that particular matchup. But speaking of the matchup at point guard, it might not be Shavar. You might see the first appearance of Bryce Aiken sharing the load with Shavar. I'm not saying that Shavar is getting pushed to the bench. I don't. I think Shavar is still going to start, but it's been talked about that you're going to see Bryce Aiken potentially come back for that game. So a lot of interesting storylines with Providence themselves, but man, the storyline's got to be Bryce Aiken coming back. I keep on saying it. Maybe he, we get him a game or two early, but this is the game that Kevin is earmarked. And I keep telling you, I don't know that people are, pardon the pun, I don't know if they're aching to see Bryce back in the lineup so far. Shavar has done a decent job. I mean, yes, his performance at St. John's was less than what people were seeing earlier in the season. But I don't know that getting Bryce back into the lineup is what people are looking for here. I'd love to see it. I want to see a different type of point guard play the game. I want to see Shavar then be able to focus his energies into what he's actually skilled at doing. I, I'm going to sit here and wait on this. Do I think he starts right away? No, I think they're going to pull him in. They're really going to try to manage his minutes this time. I don't see him getting put in for seven of eight straight minutes. But you know what? I'm not going to be sitting here holding my breath until he gets back. It's But it's the excitement. It's always about the what if. And when you have that carrot that's dangling in front of you and you have that unknown and it's a it's a potential real big positive, you get excited, right? You kind of get the juices flowing. I, I know it's going to be a, a late Sunday game, but I, I'm going to be kind of like, you know, itching to watch that one because we said it numerous times and I'm very happy with the effort that the team has put on the floor, specifically Shavar in the absence of Aiken. But if they go and win this game against Marquette, and I think it's kind of a, a toss up game. We'll talk more about it. Like I said, when we go behind enemy lines, but the reality is if, if they find a way to come out with a win there and get off to a 2-0 start to the conference and Sandro continues to roll and you have this player who is a preseason honorable mention without playing one minute against Big E's competition, adding to the mix. And that was part of the way that the whole team was supposed to be constructed from the get-go. And Bryce fills the shoes for the expectations that were set. Tom, they're playing like a middle upper half pack of the Big E's team right now potentially, and you add Aiken to the mix, you're telling me you're not excited that this team could get off to a, a 3-0 start in the conference play, start projecting themselves towards that top three, top four in the conference, and back to the NCAA tournament again? It's another one of these ifs, Mike. If Bryce can stay healthy, yes, he's going to add another dimension, and more talent is always better, but it's still an if. So I'm going to hold off. I, what am I excited about this week? I'm excited about going and playing hated Marquette. Oh, I can't wait. This is why I can't wait. Marquette, UConn, Nova. Oh, here we go. Some hated teams coming up. 
you just got two teams in the middle of the pack that are kind of like unknown as to where they're going to shake out. They all have potential. Sometimes they can they end up falling short of expectations. We're all in that same group. And you got those two games early in the season. And to add Bryce's anticipation of coming back to that entire mix, I'm sorry, it makes it an exciting week for me. It really does. I don't know whether it's a one and one, an 0 and two, a two and oh, I got I got nothing for you right now because it could go any any which way, but it's an exciting week. Since you're not willing to give a prediction, I'm gonna go on record. I'm gonna go. I'm gonna say it's gonna be a one and one week here. I think we go to Marquette. I think Marquette's a decent team. Uh, they've got some really good play coming in from the freshmen. I think we lose at Marquette. Travels tough. I think we come back and beat Providence. Take the cop out. Take the easy one and one. It could end up going one and one the opposite. You wouldn't way even give a prediction for crying out loud. Because it's all over the map. It's the what if. It's 2020. When, when this when the calendar turns to January 1st, 2021, I'm moving forward in life. Right now, it's chaos. All right. Well, hopefully next week, Sunday, late Sunday, when we're actually recording the podcast after the Providence game, we won't be podcasting angry. Hopefully you'll pull up your big boy pants next week and actually be able to give a prediction but until then we're gonna watch those games and we're gonna say go pirates let's go big blue thanks for joining us for another episode of left coast pirates be sure to follow us on soundcloud apple Podcasts, spotify or any other of your favorite listening platforms also be sure to follow us on twitter with our handle at l coast pirates we are also proud members of the what you expect network of podcasts And don't miss out on any of our previous episodes that include interviews with Seton Hall legends, Danny Calandrillo, Mark Bryant, Andrew Gaze, Shaheen Holloway, and many others. For Tom Kaharski, I'm Mike Desiri, and you've been listening to Left Coast Pirates. (laughs) 